Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss The Shadow. I am Sebastian, and I am here with Matt Anderson. Hello. Thank you for having me back. Of course. Uh, loyal listeners may recognize Matt Anderson's voice from our well-received Green Hornet podcast. He's my go-to co-host <laughs> when it comes to pulp properties. And this week, we're going to cover The Shadow and The Phantom. We're doing The Shadow versus The Phantom. Who knows what evil gets slammed. That's right. Are you ready to slam some fucking evil, dude? Evil's in both of those taglines, so I've been like playing with the constructions of, of how to do it. Matt, you are a writer, and do you have any projects coming up that you'd like to plug real quick? I do. Um, it's the project that I uh, plugged last time, too. It's I'm writing a comic with Denver Riggleman, who's a former congressman. Uh, part of the January 6th <laughs> committee, and he's got a book coming out soon. The project is about conspiracy theories and theorists. It's taken a while to come out because we majorly overhauled it, much like many projects that end up being talked about on, on this show. But in this case, it's a good thing. It has become a I'm trying to think how to best put it. it it's almost a slasher story where the victims are killed by the conspiracy theories they believe in. Love it. That sounds great. So someone is actually targeting the people that are always believing that someone is targeting them. Right. <laughs> and through it, you're going to learn way more than you've ever thought you should know about different conspiracy theories. And it's called uh, truther. Good title. It'll be coming out. I'm hoping by like January of uh, 2023. So the first of the year, um, Wanted it to be earlier than that, but did one of those just page one rewrites that always sound like a nightmare, but in this case, it became a hundred times better. So we just leaned into that and 
now uh, I'm getting to write a slasher story, which is something I've always wanted to do. I never thought that I would get a chance to, and now I get to. So, Do you have a publisher for it? Uh, nothing that I can say yet, but leave that in there because I like the tease. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and um, I guess just to round it out, like on Twitter is where I been putting all the updates so that's just at matt begins all the information will be there all right well the only conspiracies we're going to be discussing today are why did hollywood keep making pulp superhero films in the 90s that didn't do well yes that's the code we'll be trying to crack on this episode let's begin with 1994's the shadow shall we yes wow was i surprised when i revisited this movie like i i saw it in the theater and i know i've seen it you know since but i think i'd forgotten a lot i forgot how much of like a batman jr this movie is oh big time like it just never sunk in before but whoa (laughs) like this movie doesn't exist without 89 batman well and not only that but when i watch this movie all i can think is how there's an alternate universe in which alec baldwin also the star of beetlejuice got picked by tim burton instead of michael keaton to play bruce wayne slash batman because he would have been a comic book accurate like version of the character at that time. I yes. don't think you could have done better than Alec Baldwin. You know, obviously Tim Burton went in a different direction and for, you know, his own reasons, but I just think he Alec Baldwin would have killed it as Batman. Okay, you do. Yeah. Because it's interesting because I think that on, on paper, but then watching The Shadow this time, sometimes Alec Baldwin, the way he performs, his voice always lends a sense of gravity, but it's also the gravity turns to parody very it's it's a weird thin line between him with him where it's like he can be very serious but it's almost the exact same inflections but it can be comedy with that's that's good but then part of me wonders like would that have really sunk burton's version of batman right i could almost see alec baldwin more being the adam west version of batman well certainly like post 30 rock or whatever i mean he leaned into his sort of comedic persona a lot more as he got older but i mean you know at this time he was a leading man right right he'd been doing the hunt for red october and all of that i don't think people were really processing him at this point as comedic yeah but he certainly ended up going in that direction well that's true and and i mean it, and it's funny because obviously the knock against keaton at the announcement was he was a comedy actor right right so it is funny that my concern is if in that alternate history where baldwin was batman that i would think it would play too funny and there he was the serious actor that everyone would have probably cheered upon the announcement of him but i guess what i found about him as far as in the shadow he plays it very serious which is good but it's very comical and i don't know if they knew how to convey the right balance of the tone i don't know if that's quite making sense but to jump ahead a little bit there are some scenes where part of his uh trick to make people forget the conversation they've just had is he kind of like leans back a shadow comes over him, and then it's only his eyes that are still illuminated. That read very funny to me. And I don't know why, because it's, again, I've seen this movie many times, and it's only this time that it struck me as a little more ham-fisted than I was remembering. Well, I definitely think there's a lot about the movie that's ham-fisted. But um, before we get into it, what is your history with the character of The Shadow? With The Shadow in particular, um, 
I'm a huge old time radio fan, which last time I was on, we talked extensively about the Green Hornet show. Uh, the Shadow has a weird kind of origin in that it was a character that was created to be just an announcer for uh, a variety mystery program. Uh, I think it was called like a uh, mystery hour. I can't remember. And the shadow would come on, introduce the story like a, like Crypt Keeper. And then the story would play out unrelated and it got so popular. People would go to like the pulp stands, magazine stands um, and say like, where's that shadow mystery series. And so then the publisher who had been sponsoring the radio show quickly scrambled and like hired a writer and goes, okay, now you got to make the shadow the star. Interesting. They backed into it. They had the name, but they had nothing else. And what we see in this movie is almost 100% the radio show and maybe a couple passing nods to what the pulp books were. So my familiarity came with the radio show. Like I want to say I've heard every surviving episode and considering that it went from 1936, 37 was when the when it started proper with the character of the shadow as played by Orson Welles yeah. for the first two years, I want to say. And it, it didn't end until like uh, it was like 54, 55. So it was one of the longest running shows. So I've I've heard all of those. I've also seen a bunch of the random um, like kind of B movie like programmers that they did at various studios. And those are wild because, you know, they're all like an hour long and they're most of the time just kind of weird little mystery movies. Sometimes the shadow appears as what you'd recognize him as. And then there is one of them in particular where he's a radio host. That's like, I think like a true like, like he's like a reporter, but he calls himself the shadow and he affects the voice huh. on the radio. So it's like Walter Winchell but like doing like the shadow voice and like actually like like breaking scoops. And you're like, where did this movie come from? Because it was like the third or fourth in like a series that I think um, I can't remember some one of the studios uh, made. And it was the same actor that was playing the shadow through all of them. But they were just reinventing the character Willie, like just all over the place. And I think that's one of those things where since I knew the radio show so well, I was like having a really hard time accepting any other version. Like and so when they would do these things, I was like, I don't. Why, why? Is the look of the shadow as we see him in this movie, is that derived from the movies they made? Obviously, the radio show didn't really go into what he looked like. I love that you bring that up because that's actually one of my favorite things about the character. The look originally came from a publicity still of the guy that was playing the the announcer versions in the the version of the very first thing, which was just a very cheesy, like, you know, next to the old tiny stand-up microphone, those old microphones. And, you know, he had like a little fedora on and uh, just like a black coat with his, like, it literally looked like the collar just popped up. You know, he looked like he was cold. So let's put it that way. And they're like, this is the shadow. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, interesting. But that was all the thought they gave it. And then I want to say it was probably the first covers that he appeared on when they retroactively created him as like a pulp character right and that becomes so iconic like the idea of the fedora the red scarf the kind of hook nose like ang very angular and one of my favorite things about it in the radio show he never would be described as wearing that because all he does is like investigate as his alter ego lamont cranston and then he's like oh the shadow's needed and he walks into a room and like makes sure that no one can see him so at any point whatever lamont cranston's wearing is what the shadow is wearing so it's very funny that again this movie takes 
everything from the radio show, but then the visuals from like the book covers and that's it, you know? So, and, and I think that's interesting because they, I, I read somewhere along the way that they were like, well, we never mentioned what the shadow looked like in the show because it just didn't make sense. Or, like, there was no way to do it. But then you listen to, like, the old shows like Green Hornet or Superman or anything like that. And there's always a moment in the show where they're like, even Superman himself will narrate, like, well, off with the suit and or off with Clark Kent, you know, and describe changing. So it's weird that they just never bothered at all to do that. Well, Superman came from a visual medium, so yeah. there was already an idea of what he was. Um, I just think it's interesting that... Yeah, the shadow, the image of the shadow, because that becomes so important in this movie and especially for the marketing. I don't know if you remembered the marketing for this. Yeah. It was so trying hard to be oh. Batman. I mean, and the movie itself is trying hard to be Batman, but that image of his <laughs> face was just plastered everywhere. And it was sort of recalling Dick Tracy, I think, in a bad way. That was another thing I was going to bring up is it is very interesting how almost this feels like what would have happened if Dick Tracy had been successful and there was a bunch of follow-up movies. That feels like this world, yet this movie still got made. Because one weird thing is, uh, yeah, about that image of the kind of the face, the profile shot, which... Again, that's kind of how he looked on the pulp covers. And then I think it was in the 70s when DC Comics got the rights to do a, a run of Shadow Comics. And they had famous artist Jim Steranko do the cover illustrations. I don't think he did the interiors, but he was the one that I think really like that. That profile shot that that they they recreate for the poster of the movie and stuff came from like in-house ads for the shadow coming to comics. Nice. And that's where that like defined nose, that very, I don't know, hawkish. I try to figure out how to describe it, but like that is where that really got accentuated. And what's funny is because the books and the radio show never had visuals other than the covers, the idea that like the shadow would have this pronounced nose and his alter ego wouldn't was never a concern. And in this movie, it's a plot point. Yes. <laughs> like they felt they, they were so wedded to like just that the image that they had created that they had to like reconcile these things, which was very weird to me. And especially when you have an actor like Alec Baldwin, who more or less fits the bill. I mean, yeah, his nose is right. exactly as accentuated as the character. But they were like going Wicked Witch. And I was like, what is this? And they, they kind of clumsily explain what the transformation is, but it's weird. I don't know. It, it, it really feels like it was a question a producer or the director had that they felt they needed to address and either the writer or someone just cobbled something together. It's very interesting. But yes, I do remember the marketing. I remember, um, I saw this on opening day in the theater. Wow. Yeah, I did not. What was that experience like? Well, it's funny because I went with my friend, um, a guy named Ian Springer, who I'm still in touch with. We saw the shadow on the open on opening day. And then two years later, we saw the phantom on opening day together. Excellent. I will never forget when the phantom came out it was 96, right? Yep. Two years later. Okay. So I'm 15 in 96. And I remember standing outside the theater. This is like when, you know, I was dropped off by my parents waiting for him. I'm standing outside the theater and he rounds the corner and he has a replica phantom ring on. Nice. And he just yells, I'm ready to slam some evil. And I don't remember what movies opened with it, but I know 
there was a long line for something and it definitely wasn't the phantom. So this whole crowd of people have no idea why this kid is like showing up. So, <laughs> so yes, I do remember <laughs> these movies. Um, I remember seeing the, the shadow and liking it in the theater and then it just disappeared. Yeah. It was kind of shocking. I was looking at the box office and it didn't do as badly as I thought it did, no. but it certainly sort of killed a potential franchise. Yeah. So I don't know if you're familiar with the production history of this, but you know, um, famously Sam Raimi really wanted to do the shadow Yes, and he couldn't get the rights. They wouldn't let him do it. So he ended up doing dark man which is just kind of his yeah. own original version of The Shadow, a movie yes. I really enjoy. Although I like the sequel better. When Arnold Vosselu took over, that's when the series really hit. He made it his own, man. <laughs> Liam Neeson's got nothing on Vosselu. Nope, he could be Emotep. Instead, this ended up in the hands of Australian director Russell Mulcahy. This kind of surprised me. I mean, I know who he is, and I forgot that he directed it. I swear it was one of those things where I thought it was a bigger name, you know, like a Burton Beatty with Dick Tracy, you know, kind of one of those, like someone whose name you would really associate with the time. And I was like, okay, really? That surprised me. It's just funny that they wouldn't entrust it to Sam Raimi, who would later go on to become one of the biggest directors of all time. Do you wonder if that's one of those like kick yourself kind of, and, and, and Raimi would go on to work with the screenwriter. On Spider-Man. Yep. That has to be almost like a, I know it's a cliche to say like someone lost their job over it. Yeah. <laughs> but you really do wonder if that's one of those moments where they're like, oh, yeah, we screwed up. I would have loved to see how Sam Raimi got his car into it. Though. Oh, yeah. That would have been tough because it's a period piece. He might have had to do some sort of modern wraparound story yeah. just to get it in there. I'm actually really intrigued now because like I don't think he's ever broken that like tradition i don't think it's in the quick and the dead he has broken the tradition as soon as i was saying that i'm like oh quick and the dead never mind i mean it could be in there somewhere i may just not remember or maybe it's in the background or something yeah, i would imagine he he recognizes the limitations of that that particular bit mulcahy like was this his last like big stab at theatrical no he ended up doing the third resident evil oh that's right he was the one that kicked in for Paul Anderson. Yeah, he's the one that goes sort of post-apocalyptic in uh, Las Vegas, okay. which is one of the better ones, in my opinion, but that's not saying much. Because the last thing I remember was he did that um, Jason Scott Lee, Bram Stoker's The Mummy, <laughs> the direct-to-video thing that came out in the wake of the... Which was actually, from what I remember, I was working at a video store at the time, was better than it had any right to be doesn't say much well okay he was a solid director for his day i mean highlander yeah. is something a lot of people love and i really enjoy razorback his yes. debut film i would think that this had to be his biggest project right yes like this was his chance to step up and really be part of the the name directors and i don't think it did him any favors no why don't we get into the movie a little bit and just talk about the sort of background information that we get of the shadow and you can help yeah. me out here with um, how much detail you know from the radio serials and yep. stuff. We start off in Tibet and we're introduced to the character of Lamont Cranston 
but he's called Jinko here. He's this sort of warlord who's profiting off of opium. Right. And, you know, he kills um, James Hong yeah. from Big Trouble in Little China in the opening scene. It was one of those things where it's like, once you see where, it, the, the time this movie was made and you see where the opening is set, you're like, okay, James Hong's in this movie. Right. Yeah, there's no way he's not. But I'm so, I was surprised how quickly he was in this movie. And quickly dispatched. Which leads me to a question. I mean, I know it wouldn't have extended his role, but do you either know or feel like there was a lot cut from this movie, whether it was filmed or written. I think there was. Cause there's an awkward, a really clumsy, like kind of paper over in just a few minutes into the movie. And I couldn't tell if that was trying to nod just to like old serials or if that was like, no way we're going to do an extended, you know, set piece in Tibet or whatever. Or see Lamont's return from Tibet to New York. Because it felt very clunky. But um, I will say about this opening scene is this might be the movie's one real nod toward the the novels. Well, two, there's two kind of significant nods to the, the pulp novels. In the pulp novels, um, Lamont Cranston is just one of many identities that the shadow goes by. Like Lamont Cranston exists as an actual person in that world, but he is like living the Bruce Wayne life that Bruce Wayne pretends to live. Like he's gallivanting all around the world. So while the real Lamont is globetrotting, the shadow has taken up his identity and is operating. But in the same story, he'll be Lamont Cranston. He'll be uh, ace flying pilot, Kent Allard. He'll be his own taxi driver. I guess they finally identified him in one of the stories as Kent Allard. Okay. Who was a World War One pilot that got crashed down, learned all his fighting tricks in the Orient, as they would put it. Yeah. <laughs> which I love. I mean, that's such an old trope, which is like, there's so many radio shows, they'll be like, well, this person just got back from the East. And so, you know, they know things. And you're like, what? Really? Okay. <laughs> like, that was just weird shorthand. It's like, oh, they know magic now. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't before. Right. <laughs> but I kind of felt like this might be the, the way the movie is trying to nod towards like the shadow might not be as straightforward as what the radio show made him be, which was just Lamont Cranston is the shadow like Bruce Wayne is Batman. Done and done. So that would be my only thought because they do say that somewhere in this movie that he ended up in Tibet like when he was like shot down or it was after fighting in a war and then he like stayed and kind of got corrupted. So I think that's what this sequence is supposed to be is their tip of the hand towards like he has been multiple people, but it gets lost because suddenly, you know, we, we do this and then he's just Bruce Wayne the rest of the movie. What I can speak to is just the intent of the writer, because I think what David Kep, who wrote the screenplay said was he was trying to explore the famous line from the serial like who knows what darkness lurks in the hearts of men yeah and so you know the obvious like screenwriterly way into that is like okay this guy needs to have been a bad person yeah and now he's trying to make amends for that so i mean i don't think the impulse to do this to the character is the wrong impulse no i don't think so at all i don't think that people want to see 
him juggling a bunch of different identities, just make it this one guy who went to Tibet, he was a bad person, and then he learned to be good. The problem is the way the movie handles this. It's clunky. Yeah, he's literally killing people and doing opium and sleeping with multiple women. And he's got long fingernail like opium nails and long hair and long hair it looks comical and not in the the way that you want it something to look comical like it looks bad and alec baldwin's wearing like an open robe and his chest is super hairy like he's got a real carpet going there he looked like he was late for like the photo shoot of a romance novel cover you know like there was like <laughs> you know somewhere fabio got a job because this alec baldwin did not show up and, <laughs> you know like I don't want to be mean about it, but there's a lot of times where, like, I will say, like, I feel like Mulcahy, as a director here, just saw Burton's Batman and was like, okay, got it. What I will say is he got ahead of Christopher Nolan's Batman in this opening scene because this almost feels like some of the stuff you see in Batman Begins. Totally. I mean, not the magic part, but, like, the way we're seeing the hero – in the in kind of a more global sense learning you know so he may have definitely been in the literal shadow of one batman movie but he was weirdly ahead of you know another one he was casting a shadow on the next iteration of batman he was yes just no one would remember but yeah, it's it's super awkward because he literally just gets kidnapped out of his drug yeah. den and then brought to this like Dalai Lama type character who's like played by a like younger actor, but he's got an older man's voice. Yes, which reminds me of way too many like dubbed uh Italian horror movies where like yeah. <laughs> there'll be like the little kid that will either have like the voice that's too old for him or it will clearly be being dubbed by like an older person doing a little kid's voice. Yeah. Or a woman. Yeah. Whereas here it is just, it's an off putting, which maybe that's the effect they're going for. But it's bad because we don't get to know this Dalai Lama character. Basically he, you know, tells the shadow or tells Lamont Cranston that he's going to train him to use his powers for good. And then he makes him deal with this CGI knife. That's going to come back in the climax who knew that was like the third character like the third main character of this movie <laughs> like i forgot like i i remembered the opening scene because i i was like oh this is like we're now we're seeing magic that that was what the knife you know represented basically it was like and i i really thought it was like oh, okay yeah the knife i remember that's part of the training did not remember how much it comes back. <laughs> That's the one thing I remember about seeing this movie the first time. I was like, oh, there was this terrible CGI yeah. knife in it, and it sort of ruined the experience for me. I mean, I've come around to the movie in a lot of ways since then, but... That's one of those things that sort of gives you a bad first impression of this movie when that knife shows up. And for the time, it was probably decent CG, but now it's horrendously dated. If they had kept it in, like, wider shots, farther away shots, that's okay. Because then it's just a flying knife. You know, it's going to look a little wonky, whatever. But the problem is they keep insisting upon doing a close-up on, and it's weird to say it, the knife's face. Yes. And it only does one thing, basically. It just bears its teeth. And bites your hand. By, and by, well, yes. <laughs> and it does bite someone. That's Yeah, that's good. And we don't know what this knife is. Well, it's set up almost like it's going to be the MacGuffin of the movie, but it's not. Yes. It's just right. a weapon that comes back, and then the shadow has to master it by the end so he can use it against the villain right that's it but but the fact that the knife has its 
own intelligence is the weird part. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I, I, I guess I get it. It's supposed to be like the thing that you know your abilities are good when when you can control it, like it's a wild animal. Right. But it doesn't help explain like why suddenly Lamont can even attempt to control it. It's a really kind of bog standard, like use the force. Right. But but like, did they say that? And I and forgive me if this is something that was said, but it, did his master or whatever, like, he saw potential was there in Lamont, but like, did he bestow an ability upon him or did he unlock a bill? Like, I, that's what I didn't understand. It's so poorly handled because what you would assume is that this knife would be the thing where you need to learn how to master the knife and then you can right. master your powers. But we don't get that in the beginning. You'd think there would be this extended scene where he learns to use the knife, you know, like in Doctor Strange where he's figuring out his right, magical yeah, powers. Exactly. And then he figures it out. He figures out how to do the sling ring thing to open the portal. And that's when right. he graduates. So yes. you feel like that is what's being set up here. But as we have said, what happens is it just cuts away. And then we get this like scrolling title. Cut to a title card. That say like, <laughs> Lamont trained for seven years. And then he went back to New York City. You really felt like it was uh, footage missing yes. or whatever. <laughs> you know, like the, they, they should have cut the... Uh, like, okay, sorry, guys, we tried our best to reconstruct this lost film. Like, we, sorry we've missed this sequel. Did something get destroyed in a fire or something? Right. Without truly knowing what the answer is, I'm sure they filmed something and they cut it for time because they were like, this yeah. is too boring. No one cares. We need to get him in the costume. We need to get him right. fighting criminals. This is taking too long. Because one thing... Burton's Batman does wisely as it gets right to Batman. Yes. And this movie does not do that. It does get to the shadow pretty quickly, but it does it in the most awkward fashion that it possibly can. Yeah. In a way, though, like I was kind of playing something of the what would I have done differently thing with this movie, which, again, is, as I've said before, it's it's a habit I try not to do because I want to enjoy and pay attention to what they actually did. I don't want to sit there and like recreate, you know, but I seriously think they should have just lost that whole opening. Yeah. Like open with this, the next scene we get to, that's an opening of a movie. You're right though. Like the thought that, that some of more of it had to be filmed because if that was as written, like to stop, have this title card there's no way there's no, no way that's how it was written right that's what i'm thinking so yeah so it wasn't like something that was in the scripting stage which means like if they were going to lose so much of it I, I don't know but i guess they needed to introduce the knife this movie is an hour and 47 minutes long so you got to think they could have easily had 13 more minutes of story to throw yeah. in there they probably just wanted to get it down as short as they could to have as many showings as they could a day which is going to tell you a lot about the fact that this is 1994 because like nowadays like i swear if someone turned in a cut of you know any superhero movie that was an hour and 47 minutes I'm sure a producer somewhere is like, you got any other footage? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you add some stuff back in? Like, we, we need this longer. No one's going to take it seriously. I mean, that's fine. Like, I, I, I don't mind that this was under two hours, but it, it did it in a clunky way. So it feels like it should have been longer. 
Yeah, I feel like this is a victim of the Hollywood not having cracked the superhero formula yet. Yeah. They're trying to make a 90-minute movie out of something that just cannot handle that sort of running time. And it's not until Sam Raimi will do in 2002 with Spider-Man and let that origin story breathe and have the time it needs before you get to Spider-Man that they really sort of figure that out. Let's talk about the scene that should have been the opening scene. This scene, we get to New York City and we have these mobsters on a bridge. They're great, like classic 1930s, 40s movie mobsters with the pinstripe suits yep. and everything. Tommy guns. They go the whole nine. Cement shoes. They are cement shoeing someone. That That's what you need to know about this scene <laughs> is like that is Mulcahy. What is he's Australian, right? Yep. The director. Sometimes you really have to appreciate how like someone from outside of the U.S., can just distill pop culture in just like the most perfect way. And he was like thirties gangsters, New York's got it. Yeah. And I, I, and, and it was like, he found like the building blocks and, 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 and that's why I said this should have been the opening. Like they could have spliced what we saw previously throughout the rest of the exactly. movie. Exactly. Done in his flashbacks, which they even kind of do. Cause if this had been the opening scene, it's a hell of an opening scene. It's a lot of fun. It, it's definitely hearkening back to the Burton Batman and that yes. sort of like, okay, we're going to have a rollicking fight scene with our hero in a cool cityscape background. What's happening is these mobsters are going to uh, cement shoe this Chinese uh, scientist who's played by the actor Sab Shimono. He's a recognizable uh, Asian character actor. They're going to kill him for some reason. I forget exactly why. He was a witness. They had just immediately killed someone, which it's funny. You you thought they would have done more of some story purpose because otherwise it seems very interesting that they didn't just immediately shoot him because he witnessed them shoot someone. So they probably left one body somewhere. Well, why not two? I, I missed it. And then I had to, I did go back. So I'm like, wait, why was he there? Like, yeah, he just witnessed their immediate previous crime. So we get a great sort of introduction to the shadow persona just as a voice. And I recently upgraded my home theater equipment. I got a, an Atmos, uh, you know, 5.2 sound system or whatever. And it was actually a real pleasure listening to this movie yes. because they do a lot of fun stuff with panning and, you know, spatial audio with his voice yes. coming at you in different directions and from behind you and stuff. It, it It's really fun, actually. As we start seeing the shadow, like one thing that to go back to the radio show and to the pulps where they're trying to reconcile the two, like in the pulps, he basically has no superpowers. He doesn't even cloud men's mind. Wow. Okay. He is a guy with guns a fedora, a cloak, and some other aliases. He's the shadow just based on like it, the way the Green Hornet's the Green Hornet. It's some guy that's just under an identity. The radio show is what introduced the whole, what they would call it is he has the ability to cloud men's minds so they can't see him. Right. Essentially render himself invisible. One thing that's funny about the radio show, and I don't know if this was like standards of the time, is he's very quick to good guys and bad to admit that it's just a trick. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, they'll be like, what are you, some kind of ghost? And he'll be like, no, I've just learned hypnotism. And you're like, dude, Don't why? tell people that. <laughs> Don't tell people that. Because more than once, someone else will be like, well, then he's actually in this room and bullets can hurt him. It's like, yeah, you just told people, like, 
this is a trick. It's like, no, be a ghost or be like something supernatural. It, he undercuts it all the time in the show. Well, I, it, to the movie's credit, I think they kind of play with that because in almost every scene that the shadow's in, the villains figure out where he is and yes. and get him in some way, which he overcomes. But like, you know, at one point he's standing in water. So the guy sees yeah. his impressions in water. That part I liked. Although I do think it's funny that the movie seems to tell us that like he casts a literal shadow that like somehow his powers, which again, if you're going to try and like reconcile something that has never been explained before, like that they, you know, in the radio show, they just assert these things. This is just what he does. Yeah. But in this movie, it's very weird. Your character's name is the shadow. What's his power? He's invisible. Well, shadows aren't invisible. So I think this movie tried to like, do it like Lamont became invisible, yes. but the shadows were still cast or something. No, they specifically say that. They say in the movie, the only thing left of him is his it, shadow. Is shadow. So okay. the shadow is actually the most vulnerable part of him because you can see it. And at yeah. one point, some Mongol warriors, which it's amazing because Mongol warriors wander around New York City freely throughout this whole movie. But at one point they shoot him with crossbow bolts and the crossbow bolts hit his shadow and he's pinned to the wall via his shadow. Which is also very weird because he would have been in front. Of, it's like he would have been in front of it. Like, hey, man, I'm just telling you what the movie. No, no, I know. Me. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's funny because you really do like could you imagine like. I'm going to assume that because let's see, David Kep, right? Yep. That's how you pronounce Kep. This is pre Jurassic Park. This came out after Jurassic Park. Okay. He's not a no name writer. No. And unless this script was, you know, one of those ones that's been, had been sitting around for a little while, I'm going to assume that he was operating from something of a, a place of a fan because he does really try and reconcile things. He really does try and like, take these parts, you know, that were introduced in very off the cuff ways 50 years prior and he doesn't discard them. He try for the most part, he tries to make them make sense altogether and they were kind of never intended to. Like cuz no one ever cared. So I give him credit for that, but it does lead to these moments where it's like when we see him in this first scene, it's like he's appearing out of mist. Yeah. But that's not what he does. He he does cloud men's mind, but it's not a literal cloud, but they kind of show it as a literal cloud. I think what you're rubbing up against is the fact that we've taken something that was coming from an audio medium and we yes. need to now visualize it. It's right. the same problem you might run into when you're adapting a character from a novel who may have yes. powers that aren't necessarily visual because powers don't need to be visual when they're yeah. in writing. Right. Well, it, it's like the same problem that a lot of people run up against doing Lovecraft out of right. Right. Like there's just things that exist in another medium that like you're never going to be able to translate them. You might get close, you might hit it here and there, like, but the whole experience is never going to quite gel, I think. Yeah. It is a very weird thing that these powers, you know, they're very simple in one way, but they're not fun to dramatize. They're not fun to show. Yeah. Because it's really, when it comes down to it, he's, he's just making himself invisible. And then just sort of appearing and punching people. Which means he's maybe letting them, all he's really doing is just dropping part of the invisibility. Yes. Because it's a trick he's playing on them. Really, he is always there. They just don't see him. So he, it's not like he is, he is not 
becoming invisible the way the invisible man becomes invisible, where physically a change is happening to him. The shadow is changing the perceptions around him. Which, again, really hard thing to visualize in any sort of meaningful way. It's essentially just the character has powers of invisibility. But it's like external. Right. Like, when does he have a chance to hypnotize people into not seeing him? Wouldn't they need to see him first? Right. How many people have accidentally seen something happening? Right. Uh, You know, because we'll also learn at a certain point, while it'll never be defined clearly, there are degrees to this skill, like the range of it, the how effective it is, because he's going to be impressed by something later that the villain does. That's like, I couldn't do it. Like, you know, all, all we've seen of him is lawlessly basically like making himself invisible. So it's, it's it, yeah, it's weird because he is not becoming invisible. So all of the stuff that you are seeing him do, you should really be able to just see him do. Which is kind of weird that they didn't do more like POV shots from the bad guys. Like yeah. think about the, the first shot we see is a side shot where it looks like he's materializing out of a cloud and punches a guy. If they had done that from either behind him or from the POV where it looks like a guy materializes in front of him yeah. and punches him. I think that might have given a maybe a better idea of it. Yeah, I mean, I think a director who is really trying to sort of dig into this more could maybe yeah. do something with it. But I think, you know, in 1994, the impetus is how close can we get this to Batman? Yeah. How much can this cloak look like a cape? Right. (laughs) So what we learn here after the shadow saves um, this uh, Chinese scientist is that he saves people and then he wants something in return. He recruits them into his shadow organization, you may call it, where he's going to come to them for a favor They'll have to do something for him. And in this character's case, this character is going to have to later in the movie analyze a coin that the villain gives to him. And that's how the shadow sort of starts to piece together the villain's plot. But, you know, it's sort of this like very radio serial type of situation where you're a part of this secret organization and you even get this cool ring. Yeah, it's the decoder ring. That nobody asks you any questions about why you're wearing. (laughs) Right. Could you imagine that? Like, so say you come home, you're visibly like shaken, like you've had an experience, (laughs) like your feet might have like concrete around them and you're wearing a gaudy pink earring that you've never had before do you think jen's gonna ask you something yeah (laughs) or you think she's gonna roll with it be like okay because yeah it's not subtle right and you can't tell your significant other about it you can't tell anybody about the shadow Well, and what's funny is the radio show didn't have any of this in the novels he had his little network some of it was his own identity like him just masquerading some of it was kind of this loose alliance Um, But I honestly think the ring is literally just uh, a nod to the fact that you could write in, you could send in like, it was like five cents and like a proof of purchase of some Kellogg's or something. And you'd get the shadow ring. I kind of like that. I know. I think it's fun. Yeah. I mean, again, but it's, it's just interesting though, because I love it on the whole, but at the same time, it's like, dude, you're not, you're not doing this like (laughs) subtle thing very well. 
Because then he also gives his his agents like a code, right? Yeah, the sun is shining, but the ice is slippery. That's the right. the the secret like exchange that you have with the agents of the shadow to know that you're part of the team. It, so this is like two step validation, right? Like yeah. this is like when yeah. Google makes you like log in. It's like you see someone with the ring. Dude, tell me about it. I have to do this constantly now. It's so I know. annoying. That's why I can't get into one of my accounts still. <laughs> like I'm just like uh, so I just forward things between them, but like. But so I'd be a bad shadow agent, is what I'm saying. Um, but yeah, so it's like you see someone with the ring, but could that be a coincidence? So you gotta also say this cryptic phrase. Yep. Is it right from this that we meet his cab driver? Yes, Peter Boyle as like Shevitz or something like that. Shrevy. It's like Mo Shrevitz. Shrevy is what he is called. He is in the radio show. Oh, okay. Very frequently, but he's always like he's a cab driver, but he like seems to also just be like. Lamont's chauffeur like he's yeah. always every like so it's a weird thing and uh, in um the radio show he is very much kind of like of the time like the muscle he mangles his his sayings he says a lot of like almost like yoda like things where he says things backwards they don't really lean into that much no we don't really get a lot of this character unfortunately and they've no. got a real powerhouse here I know. peter boyle playing him yeah. but this character hardly figures into the no. movie at all he just sort of drives him around i do love that in both the shadow and the phantom we get cab we get drivers out. who are part of the team <laughs> i couldn't believe it i mean man cab drivers that must have just been like the job yeah, right like if you wanted to like just get mixed up with everything um and in the radio show shrevy never knows that he's driving the shadow around he thinks he's just driving lamont cranston around uh, he's not in on the secret no not in on it at all and and, and in this does he he sees him transform? Because that's where we see the awkward. Yeah, he sees it in the the rearview mirror, and he knows that he's picking up Lamont, right? In this movie, he definitely knows that he's the shadow, and he knows okay. Lamont Cranston. I, he may not know that it's Lamont Cranston by name, but he knows right. the shadow transforms into another dude for right. sure. He sees him in the back of the cab, and he's transformed. Okay. I'm assuming he knows. Lamont Cranston, because I think he picks him up as Lamont Cranston. He does. Yeah, that's true. He's in on it for sure. Okay. Because when he when Lamont shows up later to the scientist to have him analyze it, it, he pretends that he is just another member of the group. I get the sense that Shrevitz is kind of in the inner inner circle. Yeah, that's true. Because he's taking him because Shadow doesn't have a shadow mobile. He has a cab. Yeah, <laughs> he takes a cab, <laughs> which is also very funny to think about that, like. If the shadow hears that there is a crime going, he has to get a taxi. Yeah, he has to wait for a taxi. <laughs> It'd be great to do a modern update of this, but have it be a Lyft driver Uber. or whatever. <laughs> I've got my own network of associates, and he just opens the, the Uber app, and he's like, yep, all right. Those are my guys. Yeah, it is funny. You'd think he could just either afford his own car or a chauffeur. He's got a ton of money. Because you know, well, we have to say, he is... The Lamont Cranston is Bruce Wayne. We can't say that enough because they're relying on the shorthand that we have seen the 89 Batman. So when we see Lamont Cranston, we know he's the secret identity. Fill in the blanks. Yeah. Otherwise, we don't know anything about Cranston. Like, it's not like we see him doing like a gala event, like in the first Batman movie. We know he likes to hang out at that club and he, yep. he has drinks with the commissioner. Which is his uncle in this. There is a police, like a Commissioner Gordon type character in the radio shows. You got to have your commissioner in there somehow. Right. 
who just likes to eat and drink. And yeah, he's a lousy commissioner. I love Jonathan nothing. Winters. He's a great character actor. I'll yes. always remember him as Mork's son. Do you, did you watch Mork and Mindy? <laughs> uh, yeah, on Nick at Night. Mork, uh, played by Robin Williams, has a child, and the, the joke is that the child is an old man. <laughs> he's That's played right, by yeah. Jonathan Winters. No, I love Jonathan Winters. Like, and, and, and again, it's another thing that maybe you feel like this was a bigger movie. Definitely. Because this is also, again, at a time when comic book movies, like the casts that they would attract. I mean, Dick Tracy was kind of the, the aberration, and that was basically because it was Warren Beatty. Yeah. The star power drew that cast. This breaks formula, though, in the sense that typically the formula was cast a bigger name than your lead as the villain. Yes. Which they don't do here. We get Jonathan Lone, who's a respectable yeah. um, Asian actor. But he's not a big name. I mean, he's definitely not the marquee name in this movie. And, right. you know, up to this and even past this with the Batman movies, they're going to continue on to get bigger marquee names as the villain yeah. roles. I mean, to the point that George Clooney gets, you know, second build, right? To Schwarzenegger. He definitely does. Yes. I don't remember if Keaton got second build to Jack Nicholson or not. But like, but yeah, I mean, and. Hackman was definitely bigger than Reeve. Hackman and Marlon Brando, his dad and the villain were the selling points in that movie. Right. But, and, but that was usually the thing in the, in the superhero movies is there was kind of one. Yeah. You said like marquee name, big name. And then it was kind of rounded out by like either newcomers or just the, those guys, the people that you see around. Yeah. And like this one feels I guess that makes sense, though. I guess Peter Boyle was never going to. It's not like people were seeing him going like, did you see that new Peter Boyle movie? Like, <laughs> I think he is kind of the you see him for a few scenes in a movie. Well, I think it also speaks to where we were culturally, just in the sense that, you know, the villain in this movie is Asian. And I don't think there was any Asian actors that American audiences would have known at that time that would have yeah. been a big name. So. I think that was more the issue. There wasn't anybody they could get who would be that big of a name. It's true. At least they went with an Asian actor. That was one of the things that actually did kind of when I was thinking about it, because it had been a while since I've seen it. And I remembered the character, but I couldn't remember how the portrayal was. <laughs> and I was like, oh, is this going to be one of those ones that it's like, uh, and I think on the whole, it does look fine. I don't think the John Lone, Shiwan Khan character is in any way offensive. Yeah. There's a lot about... The movie, the Orientalism, that's sort of yes. thematically baked into the cake. Right. That's not particularly uh, yeah. up to speed, we shall say. But he's not portrayed as a cartoonish Asian. Right, right. They get like 50-50 on that. Yeah, I was going to say. This and The Phantom, the movies, actually do it better than, and largely by ignoring it, I guess, is more the thing. I mean, they, they take the essentials of the white man from you know learns all the special things about the foreign land and yes. does it better than anyone unfortunately if you're gonna stay anywhere true to the origins of these characters you're not gonna get too far away from that because there are times where in the radio shows oh man like you would almost think like okay we're gonna have an asian character on an episode of the shadow and lamont should definitely interact with this person this character very well because he spent considerable time there. He learned their secrets. He knows their language. Nope. 
not a chance. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was I, that that made me kind of feel a little like, uh oh, what are we going to be getting into? It's not as bad as it could be. No. That's for sure. Let's talk about our female lead, Penelope Ann Miller as Margot Lane. Penelope Ann Miller is not somebody you necessarily would think of to be a leading nope. lady of a superhero movie. I mean, I think she fits the dress fine. I mean, she yeah. has a kind of 1930s platinum blonde look. Yeah. I don't think she's bad necessarily. I do think her character isn't written particularly no. well. No, 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 no. We're going to find out she's psychic, which yep. adds a weird layer to her character. For no reason. I mean, there's, the reason is just so she becomes more entwined with Lamont quicker, basically. Yeah. Now, Margot Lane, the character she's playing, straight from the radio series, it's lovely friend and companion Margot Lane. That's how she's introduced in the opening <laughs> title. So while Lamont went to the Orient and learned the uh, mystic art of clouding men's mind, uh, his constant companion is Margot Lane. So she's there in the Orient and everything? Nope. Okay. That's the one thing. Yeah, just sorry. Just just afterwards, she's the only person that knows Lamont is the shadow. Okay. And it's played off as like sometimes kind of romantic it's not a will they won't they the way you think about it it's like just whatever each story um needed it's like either they're just really good friends or like they seem to kind of be romantic so it's like lois lane in the superman yep. serials and tv shows except that whereas at least with lois she has kind of this agency on her own as being this reporter that would get into scraps in the radio shows, Margot is just a tag along. And, and it will be the thing where, like, and it's very funny because she'll be, like, step by step on every investigation. And then they'll, like, pull up in a car outside, like, where the, the criminals are. And he'll be like, Margot, wait here. The shadow needs to go do something. And you're like, so you're just leaving her in the car? Isn't that going to be kind of weird? Like, why didn't you drop her off at home first? Like, or, like, if you if you don't want her to be, like, involved, like, in that part, this is a weird choice. And then they will occasionally, when the plot needed it, there was always this device where in Lamont or Margot's car, when they weren't being driven around by Shrevey, there would be a police radio. And Lamont could, like, psychically send a message to Margot for her to call the cops. Wow. <laughs> if she stayed tuned into the band that the Shadow uses. So I don't I guess he's not actually psychically talking to her. He's, like, psychically ham radioing her i don't know so that's probably the little grain of something they grabbed onto to yes. do something with her character i mean in fairness to this movie i think they do a little bit more with her than that they give her more yes i mean the way she's going to figure into the plot is we're going to learn that her dad who's played humorously by the great ian mckellen again I forgot. Forgot he was in this, did you? Yes. <laughs> you forgot Gandalf was here? And I don't remember if this movie does the credits, like, in the opening or if they do them later, but, like, I must have missed his his name. Because when it came back, when it was like, I'm like, no way. It's Ian McKellen. <laughs> like, I mean, I was, I had that moment of just, like, it felt like the pre-IMDB days where you're like, who's in this? You know what? It's funny because when I first saw this movie and then I, when I came back to it later, I had forgotten that detail. But now that I've seen the movie a, a bunch of times, yeah. he's actually one of the things I think of first now because yes. like the more you watch this, the more his role kind of begins to sort of stick out as sort of a weird little anomaly because he's this like kind of bumbling scientist. Yeah, he's the absent-minded professor. Exactly. And his quirk is that he's 
colorblind, so he can't tell that he's wearing a red shirt. He thinks he's wearing a green shirt, and she sort of teases him about that. And then, have you ever seen a better plant in payoff? I mean, it's so cheesy, but I kind of love it. At the end yeah, of the movie, they have to defuse a bomb, and the wires are red and green. Yep. And Margot has to be like, Dad, no, not that one, because he's yeah. about to clip the red one because yeah. he thinks it's green. And, and I think when you're dealing with comic book movies, right? Like, at least, especially comic book movies of this era, like, that's where those kinds of things you can you can allow them. You would have to really be like a curmudgeon to really nitpick that one. One thing I will say about his performance is whereas Mulcahy, he feels like he's directing Burton's Batman. Ian McKellen feels like he's in Schumacher's Batman. Right. He's almost doing uh, Michael Goff. Yeah. Or John Glover in um, Batman and Robin. When you see McKellen's like setup, ostensibly he's building a component of the atomic bomb. The yes. whole plot of this movie <laughs> revolves around the fact that it's the atomic bomb, but they've never seen it before. They keep kind of calling it something else. Because it hasn't happened yet. Right. Eventually the shadow will say, you mean an atomic bomb? Like yes. he sort of puts it all together. Right. But yes, the atomic bomb hadn't been invented yet. So that's right. how they're sort of getting around it with this beryllium sphere, as they call it. Yes. But his lab, it's a cartoon lab. I mean, there is way too many bubbling beakers and all this <laughs> stuff. And apparently, I mean, I don't, which part was he even supposed to be working on? He seemed more like an electronics. I thought he was working on the casing, the housing right. of it. Yeah, I don't know. Anyways, yeah, it just cracked me up, though, because I was like, man, that set dresser was having a hell of a time. They're like, <laughs> more, more beakers. Another element that gets thrown in here is we have Tim Curry as the awesomely named Farley Claymore. That has to be a name from the serial, right? Not that I know of. Maybe it's just a they just tried to come up with the most oh, it's perfect. radio serially sounding name they could yes. have. I mean, his character is basically a side villain of sorts. He's got yep. the hots for Margot, but he's also working with the bad guys in the end. And, you know, he's just sort of slimy. You never doubt that he is not a good guy. Like, even though he's the business partner of Ian McKellen, he's scuzzy from the start, which is something I had a question about in thinking about whether there's a lot cut out is there's going to be a scene where he's got this hilarious building that he traps the shadow in. And he seems to be very much in tune with like that the shadow is on the case and he's trying to trap the shadow, but we never saw his like full on heel turn. There's a lot about that scene that raises questions. First yeah. of all, it's like a giant like biodome that's sitting at the waterfront for some reason. He just yeah. walks into it and then the shadow's already in there. So the shadow has yeah. been hiding out in this thing, waiting for him to show up. And Margo's in the car, right? Isn't she just in the car? Like the radio show. They did. They did it. <laughs> And yeah, it's like shaped like the thing that he makes. Yes. So it's like, was that his prototype? That's not how prototypes work. You build the <laughs> yeah. smaller one to show what you can do. He's like, oh, I did this backwards. Yeah. Again, we know he's a bad guy, but we don't know anything else. Like, and he seems to suddenly have just gone like full murder. And I, yeah, I don't know if we lost some more stuff in between the setup with him. Because it's like he's there and then he disappears for a while. And then he's kind of just the bad guy's lackey at the end. I feel like his character function is simply to tie Margot and Reinhardt to the villains somehow. Yes. 
problem is they forgot to tie the villain to him. Right. And that might be what we're missing. It's like, oh, okay. Let's talk about the villain, uh, Shiwan Khan, who is a descendant of Genghis Khan, and he gets himself into the story in a really interesting way. He basically puts himself in a metal sarcophagus and sends himself to the Museum of Natural History. He did what Garfield always did to normal, <laughs> to himself. <laughs> He put himself in a box, slapped a sticker on it, and just chipped himself. This is always one of my favorite like plot devices. How do you work this sort of thing out where you ship yourself in some, some sort of container? Well, especially because then he brings a bunch of henchmen. Right. How do they get there? How do they get there? Yeah, Mongol henchmen who will walk around New York City this whole movie in full armor and swords. This is something that I'm almost embarrassed to admit but it took till this viewing for me to catch that like he is a modern for the time person and not actually resurrected from genghis khan that it yes. is literally just bloodline because i think i must have like auto-corrected it in my own head to make it make more sense to me that like this was him re-and because he's coming out of a sarcophagus dude same thing. I've seen this movie a bunch of times, and this time watching it, I was like, oh, he's not literally Genghis Khan. Yeah. He's a guy descendant from him. Okay, so you too. All right. Yes. So this means, yeah, I think I made it try to make sense that, like, somehow he was, yeah, resurrecting himself or something when he comes out of this sarcophagus. Yes. But no, that was just a shipping method. <laughs> you know how it sort of clicked is because when he comes out of the sarcophagus, there's this uh, security guy who's played by an actor that I recognize from yes. sitcoms. And he immediately sort of takes over the security guy's mind. And he's like, either join me or die. And yeah. then he has the guy shoot himself. And he says, put your gun to your head and shoot yourself. That's right. He knew all of the... Because I'm thinking he's Genghis Khan yeah. like you. And I'm like, how does he know what a gun is? Right. And then, no, he's a modern person. He's just yeah. adopting the sort of vestments of Genghis Khan. Which is so weird. Because then he will get rid of them. Yes. There will be a scene where they'll be like, oh, basically like, you like my makeover? And it's like, well... You're not Encino Man. <laughs> like, that's what it feels like they're trying to do. It's like he was, like, out of place. But, no, it would have been really helpful if he had just been in that opening scene. Because you will learn that they learned from the same teacher and that he kills the teacher off screen. Yes. You know, or, it could, you know, if it was one of those, like, almost ham-fisted, again, like, in Shazam, they do this, like, the whole idea of that, like, Black Adam was supposed to be the, the hero, but he was dark and corrupt so they had a new champion right this is the guy that didn't get chosen and he's pissed right. about it if they had something about that then then it'd be like okay this guy has existed before this moment yeah but yeah no and he is from the pulps so this is the other element that comes from the the pulps not the radio show okay is shiwan khan i think appeared in at, at least five or six of the novel he's the closest to a lex luther to a joker that the shadow has because usually the shadow just dispatches by killing them like any villain so this is the other thing that they they did but man it's weird in this movie and he seems to have the power to show up wherever he wants he yeah. literally appears in the shadow's secret lair just yes. is there like it'd be like the joker just showed up at the bat, in the bat cave, cave and yeah. there he is and it's not a thing really you know again what the 
should be happening is they have the exact same power set. The idea is that Shiwon Khan is better at it because he's not constrained by the want to do good. He's willing to use it in different ways. Problem is, they don't show the powers the same way. No. Which, again, is another layer of confusion here. To me, I think it would be interesting, like, to see a fight scene where they both look like they're materializing out of nowhere. Well, okay, first of all, a couple of things. I don't think they have the same power. I think what we're supposed to assume is that Shiwon Khan can literally control people's minds, okay? So okay. he's not like the shadow. He doesn't disappear, although one would assume he could if he wanted to because he can make your mind do anything he wants it to do, right? Yeah. What I feel like is missing here would be that and we do kind of get a scene like this because at one point, Shiwan Khan is going to take uh, Margot's mind over and have yeah. her go and try to assassinate Lamont. Although yeah. then later, Khan's like, I would never do that. You're my greatest frenemy or whatever. Yeah. So that doesn't really make sense. But what needed to happen here is we needed to see Shiwan Khan get into the mind of one of the Shadow's other uh, so, yeah. assistants and then find out where he is. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, And then I could buy him just showing up at the lair. That's true. Because he got his way in that way. But the way this movie presents it, it's almost like he's just completely magical. Like you're like, did he yeah. just show up there out of thin air like is right. he like even alive is he just some sort of spiritual being because you think he's genghis khan and yes. it's like it's very confusing the one thing i would say to what you just said is i think the movie is trying to tell us that the shadow could do the things he does but it's the good because gotcha. the shadow does manipulate people's minds he makes the commissioner forget Right. To investigate because that's again not a power that comes from the radio show like he can again cloud men's minds in the moment but i he never leaves a lasting impression he doesn't change anyone's mind he doesn't make you jump off the empire state building like right. shiwan khan does to a character actor in my favorite scene in this movie <laughs> yes I love that scene. The best part is I forgot that they he actually jumps. Like I thought it was going to be a moment. And then I definitely forgot that the beautiful touch of hitting the building on the way down. <laughs> I was like, whoa. Right, and it just ends up being a joke that's playing in the background. As, yes. As Lamont and Margo are like walking down the street. You just see way in the distance this guy jumping off the Empire State Building. Like, oh, this happened all the time back in the 30s. And clearly like a, a, a serviceman that's on like either shore leave or yes. like, you know, because he's in like, you know, uniform. Like it is an interestingly funny, dark joke. I kind of love it. I love oh, the I love Empire State Building. I've been to it multiple times in my life. And, you know, it should be said that while I think the production design of this movie is pretty solid, definitely yeah. in the Batman vein. Yes. Unfortunately, um, HD TVs and 4K restorations yeah. don't do the backdrops justice because right. you can clearly see like you know, lines of fabric in some of the backgrounds yes. in, in that cool opening scene or quote unquote opening scene on the bridge. You can clearly yes. see that it's painted backdrops and stuff like yeah. that. Not that I mind that kind of stuff. I like it. No, I mean, in, in a way, part of me almost just thinks about it like Dick Tracy, like where that was intentional. Yeah. Like even from the start, the very like artificiality, artificial nature. Yes. Yeah. So in a way, I just kind of 
chalk it up to that. This is a movie where everything was clearly shot on sets. There's no real location stuff, except maybe some streets might have been yeah. downtown LA. But I mean, yeah. even then, it's probably not. It's probably just a back lot. So yeah. Yeah, it's very artificial, but in the same vein as the Burton Batman. I mean, that's what they're yep. going for. That's the aesthetic they're working with. So it works for me. I, I like the way this movie looks. No, that I would say, if anything, like the biggest like compliment that I have to give to this movie is its feel. Like it does feel like a 1930s adventure movie the way that I would want the shadow to feel. Um, and that's when I always get nervous because, you know, eventually Sam Raimi has secured some level i mean it's been years now but he did secure some level of rights to produce a shadow movie that he wasn't going to direct nothing's ever come of it yeah i'm assuming he would keep it again in the 30s but there's always the instinct to like take these things and 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 put them in modern well like green hornet you know take something that really kind of exists more only as like a some that almost needs to be in the 30s or 40s and modernize it. Green Hornet, they made, I, again, I think they made it work. I don't see the Shadow or the Phantom or anything like that working in a modern time. So I'm glad that these movies exist and that they nailed that part of it, if, if nothing else. Yeah, they're ideas that need to be sort of trapped in amber and they need to be appreciated in that context because yeah. otherwise they don't work. What you have to do is completely reinvent the character yeah. do a completely modern update like like you were saying with green hornet but even just sort of taking the basic essence of like the pulp character yeah. and you know updating it that's why i like dark man because i feel like that's what dark man is kind of doing yeah and that leaned into like the kind of modern for its time but still like just years ahead of its time kind of uh origin story where it's like it's a very true to the the time and then what he is creating is beyond us at that moment you right. know so it's like the way the sci-fi mag pulps always did the the time a few years from now one thing and i you know, it's almost like the horror movies and cell phone problem right like how people always say like nowadays it's hard to do a good horror movie because cell phones yeah um there was an episode of the radio show of the shadow where um the whole conceit was the villain had an electronic eye at his house basically a security camera and it's like okay how do we deal with that yeah the shadow is literally defeated or like it's stumped by like the most common thing you can think of now so even television would have not worked you know the shadow as his power set almost wouldn't work if any kind of camera was more readily available which i'm kind of surprised they didn't do in this movie like I kind of was expecting like one time for like, like, a, you know, someone with like press in their hat, you know, and a camera like snap, like Margot right. talking to no one. And then it's like, who's this? What, there was no one there. Kind of the vampire or, or the opposite of the vampire thing. There's a lot about the mythology of the shadow that I don't think gets like leaned into as much as it could, you know, no. stuff like that where, you know, exploring this ideas in different ways, I think yeah. would have been helpful. Shiwan Khan's plan is perfect for the time in that it is nonsense it makes no sense to me yeah. whatsoever he wants to hold the city for ransom by blowing up a big part of it part of it and then is going to move from city to city like replicating this <laughs> basically recreating the atomic bomb over and over again or some version of it i guess like genghis khan would have done is i think a line <laughs> he says and it's like 
I don't know. I don't know if that's how that worked, but okay, you know, fine. One kind of problem I have with just the body of the movie is that there's not enough shadow. There needs to be another scene of shadow action. Not that the action scenes are that great necessarily, but still you want to see the character doing yes. stuff. And there's like a big chunk from the time of the um, bridge scene. Like we don't see the shadow again until like an hour. in. Yeah, that's true. He goes to uh, Reinhardt's lab and has the fights with the Mongols there. There's one fun moment where he's fighting with a Mongol and falls off this balcony and like lands on a gargoyle and then he makes a terrible joke. Next time you get to be on top. That was weird. The shadow cracks like sex jokes. Yeah. <laughs> Just one. They were trying. He was trying it out. <laughs> he hadn't quite landed on the shadow nose yet. You know, so he's like, let's 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 road test a few of these. I do appreciate the fake camel cigarettes, llama cigarettes, the billboard of llama cigarettes. I loved it. Again, much like the knife. Didn't realize it was going to become basically a character. Reinhardt gets hypnotized and Shiwan Khan's face basically becomes the advertising face and the smoke's blowing out of his mouth. It's yeah. kind of fun. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, that's the other thing is, have we, we've seen the knife again, right? Like, that's, that doesn't just come out at the end, right? Like, we know that Chi Wan Khan has it. Yeah, in this in the Chinese restaurant scene, that's right. a Peking duck is referenced because Margot Lane has a craving for it early in the movie. Oh, but yeah. and the shadow hears that in his mind. That's how he knows she's psychic, because he's like, I have a craving for Peking duck. And she was like, I was just thinking oh, about that's right, Peking yes. duck. And so then... The way it ties in is the shadow goes to that Chinese restaurant and Khan's there. Now he's in his nice suit and these yeah. Brooks Brothers tie because the, the Lamont was wearing the Brooks Brothers tie. Yeah. And Lamont's like, nice tie. There's two scenes with Lamont and Shiwan Khan where they're just sort of tete-a-tete. And I love yes. Baldwin in these scenes because he is kind of doing a little of the comedy thing where he's like, yep. you're a barbarian. Like, he, you know, he's yeah. he's he's being polite, but then he's like, you're completely insane and that kind of thing. I have, I always have a soft spot for those. Um, it's, it's the James Bond villain, you know, like, yeah, you know, you you know, you're in a classy production when like the villain and the hero will sit down for a fancy dinner. Yeah. Like if you've got that scene in your movie, you've automatically like moved up a few tiers. Like I, it gets me every time. So, yeah, no, I like I like that. But but again, it almost feels like it's playing on the idea that these two should know each other. Yeah. This should be more of a. Yeah. Again, like they train together and now they're at odds or or they should be complete strangers and there should be no tie. There should be no hint that their origins ever intermingled. Doing it halfway is weird. I agree with you that they should have been more linked. And that is something, again, that has been sort of figured out with the superhero yes. formula. Like almost every villain now, to the point where it's kind of gotten a little bit too much. Yeah, now I'd almost appreciate if they didn't. And again, I think it's also now because we're so much more used to shared universes. So the idea of multiple powered people is an everyday thing. So I think when you're working in these movies where like, there's no other heroes. There's no other superpowers. I think that's when it made much more sense to to tie these things together a little tighter because it's not a world where these things happen. Yeah. But yeah, to what you were saying about like kind of the 
conclusion, it's like it takes a while to get there and then we're there all of a sudden. And I feel that happens with both the movies yes. we're going to talk about, both The Shadow and The Phantom. The Phantom, I feel, is more guilty of. I agree. I have problems with both the climaxes of The Shadow and The Phantom. But I do like the Shadow one a little bit more. The Shadow yes. one at least has this cool conceit that they've been looking for Shiwan Khan's hideout. Nobody knows where it is. But like Lamont keeps coming to this street corner yeah. where there's like, you know, it looks just like a construction site. Nothing's there. and But something is just kind of troubling him about this street corner. And there was an announcement of something to be built. But it never got built. Right. And what he figures out is that Shiwan Khan has literally clouded everybody in the city's mind to not see this old hotel yes. that's still there. And that's his hideout. I love that part. And I love that it was a good way to distill the idea that he is more powerful than Lamont. Because you have Lamont wowed by that. Like, yeah. I'm unclear why Lamont could never see it. To me, I feel like he should have been able to always see the building. Because I don't know why they really worked on each other. And also, like, Lamont's powers don't work on Margot right. because of her psychic thing. But yet, Shiwan Khan's power, and maybe, again, it's just the idea of he's more powerful. Because, like, Shiwan Khan could uh, brainwash Margot. I mean, I think you're helping out the movie. <laughs> That's probably the reason, but the right. movie doesn't say this clearly. No, it, well, exactly. On camera here, you can see me trying to like piece it together in my head. I'm like, well, wait, wait, okay. All intents and purposes, it's a cool set piece. Like the idea that like this villain has taken over the super fancy hotel and just decided like, I want it. <laughs> Everyone forgets it. And there's a cool scene um, where... Like Margot even like or she talks about how she's like went to the newspapers into like their like morgue or whatever where like she was researching the address and it's like, yeah, there was all this news about it until like three years before. Because really what the news would have been is it got built. We see that his power is very effective, but at the same time, I don't know how he's changing printed newspapers. Hey man, he's just wicked powerful. What I do like about this is that now we have a cool set for yes. our climax. We get some of the best moments of sort of iconic shadow shots in this mm -hmm. like kind of opening of the climax where he's in the lobby and he's fighting the Mongols and stuff. It's Batman ascending the cathedral. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, but in is. some ways it's kind of better. There's a couple of shots when his cape is flowing like they clearly you know made it out of a very light material so yeah. that like you see it flowing and stuff and it really looks cool. Yeah. The made up face is a little hard to stomach but I like everything else about yes, the shadow exactly. look. I love his like gun holsters and mm. he's just really cool. I actually have an action figure from the movie oh awesome yeah they made them and nobody bought them i didn't buy it at the time but i found yeah. it at like a thrift store or something i'm like yes shadow and like you can take his face and put like lamont's head oh, on it and stuff they were really leaning into that Man. oh yeah they thought every, all the kids were gonna love that like everybody's gonna love turning him into this hawk-nosed <laughs> weirdo it's so weird i guess it's another one of those things where i think i must have just really glazed over that like in the past viewings and it really hit me like this time uh, again it's not that they're trying to like say like well this way then when anyone sees the shadow they don't immediately know it's lamont because they don't ever play that no it's not like his features are changing so like when 
you know, he's talking to Commissioner Gordon. He is not clearly, no, it's just, it's it's his darkness that's coming out. And why, if he's changing his face to be unrecognizable, does he need the red the sash around the yeah. bottom of his mouth? Like, you're right. already changing your face. Yeah, it feels so weird, like, that they insist that this has to be part of it. Well, it's because they're trying to grasp for something that's iconic. And, like, yeah. when you really think about Batman does it make any fucking sense that Batman looks the way he does? That no. doesn't look like a bat. Right. He looks like a crazy person with a weird mask. I mean, it's iconic and we all love it. Yeah. But like Batman has been so firmly entrenched in the minds of American culture that you put those ears and a cowl on somebody yeah. and they're Batman. Exactly. They're hoping they're going to have the same success with putting a guy in a fedora and giving him a weird nose over a red scarf, and that's not going to work out for them. No. <laughs> I mean, I guess, again, you know, I'm just thinking like Al Pacino and Dick Tracy. Like, right. That's the kind of look we're ending up with. I think they're kind of halfway in that territory intentionally, yeah. but I think they're really trying to land on an iconic image. Yeah. And it's not easy to do. No. It's one thing to create a character, but trying to create a character that's going to have some sort of iconic resonance, yeah. it's almost impossible because the world is going to decide whether or not something right. is iconic ultimately. Yeah. If everyone could make a spider man or a batman every time like you know there'd be a lot of people with a lot more money in the world than there is right no exactly and and i get it, it again i think it's just it's just one of those things where you you have to sit there and kind of go like what was the the choice that was being made here it, it seems like a weird detail to get hung up on you know the only thing they're really essentially doing is the nose <laughs> i mean really and that comes only from cover again there's no other point in in this character's history that that's ever been a, a factor so they are really leaning on like those cover illustrations but for whatever reason that's the thing that's stuck and i've read some more modern shadow comics and they depict him like that in those comics yes no and that's the thing it's like the frank frazetta conan yeah covers it's the same someone thing, got like, it right and they yeah chased it and it doesn't even have to do so much with the way the character was originally envisioned because when you read robert howard's original conan stories he's described as being like panther-like and like lithe and it, yeah it doesn't exactly match the frank frazetta drawings but once those frank frazetta drawings happened yeah. that was what conan was yeah. in everybody's mind yeah and everybody has been chasing that ever since i get why they're doing it but yeah. it doesn't look that good. No, and I guess that may be the thing about it, right? And and that could also be some other things where maybe there's been some weird cuts is maybe you talked about like how the shadow disappears for a while. Maybe they shot more with yeah. it and the more you saw – because to their credit, like when he's like kind of Jekyll and hiding in the back of the cab in the beginning, we're really only seeing it through Shrevey looking through the rear view. That's this idea that this transformation is happening. So – it does feel like they're almost hiding it a little bit more. Yeah. So it could be that, like, they shot more with it. And we're just like, Ugh. I do think it's funny that Sam Raimi, when he did Dark Man, was like, 
yeah, the nose, like that's going to be the thing that we're going to keep seeing him making is a nose and it keeps breaking down or whatever. I honestly think the nose is just an effort to create a recognizable profile so that you can see this, an outline of this character and you'd be like, oh, I know who it is. It's the shadow because otherwise all you've got is a fedora and a cloak. And you have to know that like the catchphrase. Who knows what evil lurks in hearts of men? Yeah. That had to have factored in. So some marketing meeting was like, yeah, he needs more of a nose. <laughs> Who knows? It's too dumb. Like there's, it, it, it's so dumb, but it had to have. It had to have. All right. Well, let's just move through this climax pretty yeah. quickly because, I mean, there's not a whole lot to say about it. It's a bunch it's of CGI. sort of set pieces you know Khan for whatever reason has this room that has like a moving floor so that you know we can have this almost Flash Gordon like sequence where the shadow is trying to get to Khan and he's dealing with this floor and then you know that's when Khan unleashes the knife at him so the shadow's got to fight the knife and gain command of the knife at one point he chases Khan into the this mirror realm or whatever you like exploding mirrors you'll love this this is kind of objectively terrible oh it's bad it seems like grasping at straws of like what are we gonna do like they really are following the footsteps of Batman 89 in that they just didn't really have an ending so right, let's right. just wing it because I think at the end of the day they went like oh wait these guys their powers are all like in their mind Oops. <laughs> then have a proper mind battle. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's kind of what they're trying to do, but it's not represented no. effectively visually. You ever think about like what it would be like to see the raw footage without the CGI, like just seeing them like staring at each other yeah. and like nothing else <laughs> is happening. Like it's like when sometimes they do the things where it's like, vocal only track, you know, yeah. something and you're like, oh, weird. I, I kind of want to just see these guys just glowering at each other. Be like, don't worry, it's going to look great. They do wisely sort of ditch the shadow look for this end. I mean, you know, it's really just handsome Alec Baldwin at this point and his hair looks really cool and he ditches the cloak even at one point and so he's just got the guns. Which are not in the radio show. That's the other thing. He doesn't use guns in the radio show. It's all the novels. But you know it's a pretty standard 90s uh, superhero climax. Maybe even a little subpar. But you know the end result is that Khan gets the knife in the gut and uh, Margot and her dad uh, clip the wires on the bomb and New York is saved. Well, he doesn't just get the knife in the gut. He gets the shattered glass. Basically, they don't kill Khan. He's alive. Um, but Lamont, like, targeted a a shard of glass into his forehead to take out a gland that's where the powers are. Right, so I forgot that. Yes. There's a little post scene where we see Khan in an asylum, essentially, and he's, like, trying to, like, do his mind trick on the guards and or the, the the doctor and the doctor like looks like he's like getting entranced and he's not and then pulls back he realizes there's a scar yeah and it was a yeah like some form of frontal lobe yeah he got a lobotomy from glass is <laughs> apparently where all of the it's it's the midichlorians of, of this movie like it's the tangible aspect well it's the pineal gland have you ever seen um from beyond yes that's right yep yep that's it I like that Lamont, like, this is never an issue in this, like, it's never brought up. And then, like, an assassin, he, like, doesn't kill him just 
severs that thing. <laughs> Again, it feels like they didn't know what to do. I kind of like that, though. I do. I mean, I'll, I never forget it. Like, I to me, I, I forget that he gets stabbed by the knife. I always think that the only thing that happens to him is the, the glass of the forehead. So that's how it actually makes an impression on me. So, yeah, I mean, Margot and Lamont kiss. She knows that he's the shadow, and uh, he gives the signature line as we cut to credits and there's laughing over credits right yeah i think so we get the the shadow nose line and yeah. that's it there's two parts of the, that's the shadow nose is the the opening one and then at the end of every radio show it's the weed of crime bears bitter fruit i believe that is in i there think that's somewhere. in there somewhere and that yes. one always makes me laugh because i'm like <laughs> That's the kind of thing that you just want to drop like at a dinner party or whatever. Like <laughs> I have. Don't worry. Don't worry. I have said that outside of any context that anyone would recognize it. Man, this neighborhood's getting bad or whatever. Yeah. Well, the weed of crime bears bitter fruit. It's so clunky. Like there's no. I love it. There's no world in which like that actually like it's like, whoa, <laughs> it's a fun movie. I, I can't I can't hate on it too much. Yeah, I have to say I have a, an affinity for the movie for two reasons, really. A, because I love pulp heroes. Mm -hmm. And B, because I just really have a soft spot for this nascent time and yeah. superhero movies where things weren't all dialed in yet and no. they were grasping at straws like they ran at the same wall like four times though that's the that's the thing right like yes well i mean look my podcast is called tentpole Trauma. Oh, I know. like obviously these are things yeah. that fascinate me like why did hollywood come back to this well several times well yeah. and the answer is simple and that's batman yeah the end like that movie made so much goddamn money right that like hell let's just keep trying to get out of that batman money but it's also another one of those situations where you feel like they learned a weird lesson from Batman, which was like Batman took place in 1989, but the aesthetic took it out of that time and place. When you saw people walking around in Gotham, they looked like they, a lot of times they were dressed like they were in the 40s. The cops uniforms were 40, you know, like, yeah, but it was a modern movie where is like everyone that came after it just decided like, oh, 30s, 40s. And that's where they set everything. And I don't know. It just seemed like a less of a, an artistic choice and more like the setting was what was going to sell it. Yes. And I, and that seemed to be the weird lesson they learned, you know, cause even like a character that wasn't an old character, but the, you know, in the middle of this, we had the rocketeer. Yep. Which also failed. Failed. And I love that movie. It's a good movie. Yeah. But again, it's, it's, you know, so we have like Batman comes out and then we get Dick Tracy, the rocketeer, the shadow Phantom. I mean, like by the time Phantom comes out, it's been set only seven years since Burton's Batman. So basically like every other year they've tried a big budget 1930s. <laughs> well, and even Batman is sort of moved out of that aesthetic by this point because Joel Schumacher is directing it now. And now we're into like gay disco Batman. And even Batman Returns didn't really have the 40s. The 40s. Thing. I mean, a little bit, but not not a little. Even... But it was more just Tim Burton. Craziness. Oh, that was just yeah. It was whatever Tim Burton's head was. That's all it was. The people making these movies were seeing that 1940s aesthetic in the first Batman and thinking that that's the thing that was going to work. Yeah. But the reality was what was working about that was the character of Batman and Tim Burton's aesthetic. The way he filtered it. Yes. He took he took all of all of these aspects of Batman and it filtered through his unique perspective. 
And it's also, we haven't mentioned, but it's worth just a quick note is the other thing that evokes Batman in the shadow is the score. You cannot tell me that like he didn't just binge Danny Elfman's Batman 89 score. There are moments where like it swells and like you see when you see the shadow and he's got like the cape. It's not even a cape, but they make it look like a cape. And you're like, this is like karate panda to kung fu panda, Danny Elfman. It was Jerry Goldsmith who did the score. He also did Supergirl, which is the podcast that we're going to put out this week. Wow, okay. Two Jerry Goldsmith superhero scores. I mean, I love Jerry Goldsmith. He's one of my favorite of all time. It's no knock. I mean, the music is good and effective, but it doesn't exist without the template that came before it. Right. His assignment is to do yeah. the Batman score. Give us a Batman score. I'm sure that was literally what was said to him as yeah. he sat down. We need a Batman score. Yes. And also another thing is, and I don't you know, mean to sound like that I would have been the greatest movie executive in Hollywood, but if you asked me in 1989 okay, how do we replicate the success of Batman? I would have said, make a goddamn Spider-Man movie. Right. Which, I mean, there were other things going on there which prevented it from happening. Ninja Spider-Man. The thing that just blew my mind was that it took so long to get to Spider-Man from Batman because it's like Superman, Batman, you either do Wonder Woman or Spider-Man. Or you do Steel. That's a logical next step, right? (laughs) That was in here somewhere (laughs) but yeah no exactly because ultimately like especially all of those early ones they needed to be the ones that were already familiar enough to the audience that like the burton batman you could go into it and not need the origin up front yeah and if you think about it that had to be just because it was ingrained enough on one level that they didn't feel the need to front load it because that's not like the Adam West show ever touched the idea that Wayne's parents were killed. So either the audience was primed from memories of that show to not even need an origin or it had just seeped into the culture enough. Bruce Wayne's an orphan because his parents were killed by crime and that's why he fights. And the Burton movie gives you that. It just doesn't give it to you up front. Right. But that's what I mean, though, and that allowed him to start the movie with a bang as opposed to some kind of slower build or awkward semi-origin sequence that just confuses people, which is kind of what we had in The Shadow and honestly, kind of what we get in The Phantom as well. Yes, we're going to get sort of a different attempt at that in The Phantom, which ends up being equally as awkward, but in a totally different way. Totally. Hey, loyal listeners, as you can hear, our conversation on the shadow ran long, so I decided to divide these into two episodes, mostly for my own sanity when it came to editing. So hold on to your brillium sphere, clip the red wire, and find out what evil needs to be slammed in the hearts of men next episode. That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. 
You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon. Mm-hmm.